One thing that most Christians haven't experienced till college is being the odd man out. And most of the reason is because they've grown up in a Christian environment and they've been in a church and a youth group and so on. And yeah, maybe they went to a secular high school, but even so, it didn't really feel like they were that oddly out. But when you get to a big university, suddenly you realize, wow, no one here thinks like me. No one here believes what I believe. I am uh, really intellectually and theologically uh, in the minority in ways I've never experienced before. And that raises really important theological questions, which is basically, if Christianity is true, why don't more people believe it? That's, you know, and, or to put it even more bluntly, if Christianity is true, why, do, why does it seem like the smartest people are the very ones who don't believe it? Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Michael Kruger. Michael is the president and Samuel C. Patterson professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary, and a leading scholar on the origins and development of the New Testament canon. He's also the author of Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College from Crossway. Today, Michael and I discuss what it takes for Christian college students to make it through college with their faith intact. He highlights the top intellectual challenges to biblical Christianity many students will face at a secular campus, including unprecedented pressure to abandon the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality. He also shares how Christians can take the heat out of controversial conversations with non-Christians by remaining humble and asking good questions. And he shares why it's so important for parents and churches to focus on worldview formation for young people before they arrive on campus. Let's get started. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Oh, good to be with you. So glad to be a part of this the show. So your daughter, Emma, is currently a student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Is that right? She is. In fact, she uh, is now a sophomore and started at my alma mater and her first year was almost 30 years to the day when i started wow. at unc chapel hill so it's been a sentimental and, and fun experience yeah that's such a cool dynamic that you guys get to, to experience there and i'm sure there are many things about the school and about your your undergrad experience that you guys will be able to share but i wonder if there are any things that you think have changed about the undergrad experience uh, for your daughter and her generation uh, compared to when you were in college? Do you think things are different now than they were uh, in significant ways? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would say it's a, it's a bit of a mix, isn't it? I mean, there there's certainly a lot of things that are different and, and new. I mean, it's it's a physically different place. I mean, I look around and there's new buildings and new walkways and paths and, st- and structures that weren't there. Um, it's, a, it's a different world today than when I was going to school in the, in the late 80s and early 90s in a number of fashions. But at the same time, you know, you, you could say there's really nothing new under the sun, right? The, mm. the, the world is the same and, and, and the human nature is the same. And so one of the things that I think is, is always confirming to me about uh, the way we read Scripture is the Scripture has diagnosed the human heart and the human condition from, from thousands of years ago. And when you look at people today, you realize, oh, wait, it's kind of the same thing. And so when I hear stories from Emma about conversations she's having with her non-Christian friends and and, and even theological discussions with her Christian friends, I'm, re- I'm, I'm reminded again that, wow, this is exactly what I experienced when I was in college. And, and fundamentally, a lot of it is similar. In fact, occasionally she'll even call me on the phone with her friends on the line just to dialogue about stuff. So it's a lot of fun. 
Mm. Yeah, in your new book, you talk about just uh, entering into undergrad, and you, you mentioned that you were not prepared uh, for what that would be like in significant ways. Uh, could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I headed off to college, I'm guessing that my experience was probably pretty normal for lots of people in my generation, and I think even still today, where if you're a Christian and grew up in a Christian environment in a Christian home, you probably were part of a youth group and you probably had a Bible study and you and you committed your life to Christ and you believe the Bible is the word of God. And all that seemed to maybe make you think you're ready for the next thing in life. And so off to UNC, I went thinking, well, you know, I had parents who were Christians and good influences on my life and I'm, I'm all set. Well, what I wasn't ready for was the intellectual onslaught I got there in terms of ideas and and challenges to the Christian faith. And I'd never heard these things before. I wasn't trained to think theologically and I wasn't trained in the Christian worldview. So the way I like to say it is I was probably ready, ready in sort of a, a moral sense and, and maybe in a, in, in a sense of, of trying to live for Christ, but I certainly mm -hmm. was not ready in an intellectual sense. And, and, and ironically, you'd think that'd be one of the main things you'd be ready for in a university environment, but I just really wasn't. So I found myself in a, in a, in a pickle when I was in a religion class and didn't have answers to tough questions. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's a common challenge with you know young Christians today that there's there's maybe a surface level understanding of Christian morality, maybe a surface level understanding of the Bible even, but when it comes to like a robust intellectually grounded Christian worldview, a coherent understanding of the world and who we are, who God is and our our place in the world, is that something that you found is is often lacking? I, I know you work with college students professionally. You're the president of a seminary. You're a professor. Uh, what are you seeing with incoming students on that front? Yeah, well, I think this, my experience, and, and I imagine my daughter's too, probably reveals a lot about modern American evangelicalism. And it has different stripes. And depending on the stripes you come out of, you, you, you have strengths and weaknesses. You know, there's there's what you might call the uh, revivalistic stripe, where the main concern is, are you converted? And and by the way, that's a really important concern. And there's what you might call the pietistic stripe, which is, you know, the main concern is, well, do you live like a Christian, right? Do you you follow God's uh, way of life, and are you doing the right things? And and of course, that's important too. Uh, and then there's this third area that I think goes untouched in a lot of churches, and the one you just described, which is, well, what about our what about loving God with our minds? What about our intellectual life? What about understanding more than just, you know, factoids about the Bible I could recite at vacation Bible school, but really a robust sort of intellectual engagement with the Christian worldview and how to defend it against non-Christian thought. That just isn't on the radar of many churches. And I've, I've actually pondered why. I, I don't know why. I, I wonder if it's a seminary problem. Is it a cultural Christian culture problem? And, uh, you know, there's probably lots of ways to diagnose it, but, but I had those first two in spades, mm. pietistic, revivalistic dimensions, but I just didn't have the third, and I, I feel like that's probably not that different than today. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's so interesting. I feel like one of the things I hear most often, um, kind of a criticism of uh, that third category that maybe isn't as common, is it can be overly intellectual, and it's less concerned about um, you know the lived experience of the Christian and uh, faithfulness and obedience in daily life, those kinds of things. What would you be, be your response to that kind of a critique? No, I, I hear that a lot. There are there are wings of American evangelicalism that you could say are suspicious of academic study and maybe a little skeptical about higher training. And the reason they're skeptical is sometimes uh, legitimate, which is that maybe people they know or experiences they've had with people who have a lot of training tend to be a little bit 
cold, hard facts type of people. Maybe there's not the heart in it. They don't want to just be all about data, but about, about love and loving Christ and loving people. And so there's a legitimate concern in the background of that. But the problem is, is it for those who think that's the, the main problem, you end up having sort of an anti-intellectual version of Christian faith that's suspicious of everybody who learns more than just your, 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 your college level understanding mm -hmm. of things. And unfortunately, that creates a Christianity that cannot engage the world intellectually. Um, yeah. And so the concerns are valid, but I don't think you solve it by just chopping off that dimension of the Christian life. And the reason you can't do that is because the Bible doesn't do that. Um, Paul didn't do that. And Jesus exhorts us to love him, yes, with our, with our hearts, yes, with our, our lives, but also with our minds. Hmm. So let's let's dig into that then, the intellectual dynamic there, and in particular, the intellectual challenges or even threats to uh, a Christian faith that college students are going to be facing when they enter into uh, a secular university. Um, so if, if you had to boil things down, I, I know this is challenging because there are there's a lot of variety and diversity on this front, but um, what would you say are like the top three or four intellectual threats or challenges to a robustly Christian biblical faith and worldview that students might be facing? Yeah, that's a great question. It is, it is hard to boil it down because there's so many different dimensions to it. And it depends on the school, depends on the student, right? Uh, one of the things I've noticed over the years is some students are rattled by certain questions, but not others. Mm -hmm. And it depends on their own background and what they're used to. But several things definitely stand out. Uh, one thing that stands out, I think, in terms of a, a, a problem Christians face on campus is just the, the issue of being so vastly in the minority. One thing that most Christians haven't experienced till college is being the odd man out. Yeah. And most of the reason is because they've grown up in a Christian environment and they've been in a church and a youth group and so on. And yeah, maybe they went to a secular high school, but even so, it didn't really feel like they were that oddly out. But when you get to a big university, suddenly you realize, wow, no one here thinks like me. No one here believes what I believe. I am uh, really intellectually and theologically uh, in the minority in ways I've never experienced before. And that raises really important theological questions, which is, Basically, if Christianity is true, why don't more people believe it? That's, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, or to put it even more bluntly, if Christianity is true, why, do, why does it seem like the smartest people are the very ones who don't believe it? Okay, so that's a big challenge. The second challenge I would say that Christians face today that's really keen is the challenge of diversity. Uh, and by diversity, I'm not talking about, about racial or ethnic diversity. I'm talking about the diversity of ideas. They get into a college campus and there's other religions, other philosophies, other systems. And suddenly they show up with Christianity that says it's the only right way to think. And, and it just doesn't seem like that that flies. They feel like the sort of, you know, knuckle dragging Neanderthal in the room <laughs> uh, where everyone looks at them like, wow, you still believe that stuff? And so there's this weird sense of feeling like our monotheistic exclusivity is as out of place as ever. Now, of course, it, that's technically not true, although people feel that. One of the things I point out in some of my books is that actually in the first and second century, Christians were out of place just like that. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, but we don't ever think of that, and we just think that our, our time is unique. But that's a, that's a second category. And then the third category I mentioned is this: the the attacks on the Bible. You know, obviously, you know, uh, Christians, you know, hold the Bible to be the Word of God, but it'll be challenged in so many different ways. Of course, by religion professors, by Bible classes, even by science, and so that barrage is never ending. So those are the three main categories I think mm. people are going to be facing. Yeah, and I want to come back to that issue of the Bible in particular, because I think that is so foundational and important. Um, but before we go there, uh, just going to the first two that you mentioned that seem in some ways interrelated. Um, I know I've heard this story, it almost feels cliched, but the, the story of the, the Christian student who comes into college and eventually loses their faith, often a part of that story is 
as you were kind of saying, uh, an, a realization, an awakening to the variety of worldviews that are out there, the intelligence and the genuine sincerity of non-Christians um, or even maybe progressive Christians could be kind of in that category, um, the, the morality of those people. And, and sometimes that can almost be uh, world-shifting for somebody who has been brought up in a context where uh, the, the Christian worldview was just assumed and everyone else was kind of portrayed as uh, obviously, intentionally, willfully ignorant or, or, or kind of rejecting uh, God and his revelation in a very um, direct and obvious kind of way. And so I wonder, do you feel like there's a sense in which the evangelical church, whether that's church leaders, even parents, ha- have done a disservice to young people in not perhaps exposing them to the best of the non-Christian intellectual world before they get to a place like college and then all of a sudden uh, find it to be maybe quite compelling? Uh, absolutely, that's the case. Uh, you know, I think you've you've tapped into one of the major challenges that, that Christians have when they show up at the university, which is, uh, I kind of put it this way often when I talk to people, it's like they just find out that they like the non-Christians mm. they meet. I know that's a weird way of saying it, but it's honestly what's happening. They meet non-Christians like, well, I really like this person. They're kind, they're they're funny, they're they're smart, they're thoughtful. They're not a uh, uh, you know they're not sort of Darth Vader out to you know attack every <laughs> believer. They they have good reasons for what they believe. They actually treat other people well. In fact, arguably, maybe they even act better than my Christian friends. Now that that whole dynamic shakes up many many believers. What what people don't realize though is that the reason it shakes up believers is actually they've entered college with a faulty theology. Uh, that no one's ever corrected. And that faulty theology says that everybody who's an unbeliever is as bad as they can be, or everybody who's an unbeliever is a jerk, or everybody who's an unbeliever is an idiot, or everybody who's an unbeliever is this or that. And the Bible never teaches those things. In fact, on the contrary, the Bible talks about what's called common grace, which is even non-Christians can be highly intelligent, successful, smart, uh, and even thoughtful, kind people, uh, because God restrains in them what would otherwise be the case uh, in, in terms of their sin. And that that is something that Christians have always believed theologically, but it's never taught to young people. Hmm. So they go in and they say, well, wait a second, none of that's true. But of course, the thing they thought should be true never should have been true in the first place. Right. And so what you realize is there's a price for, for, for bad theology, and there's a real bad price for it sometimes. Now, how can that be fixed? Well, sometimes it can be fixed just by teaching people about common grace. But like you said, it can also be fixed by exposing students when they're younger to the bigger world that's around them. Now, there's lots of ways to do that. Of course, we won't necessarily probe into all those in this call, but I think as long as that's on the radar of of parents, I think they need to think about ways to get that done. Yeah, I I would imagine, you know, someone listening right now, a parent listening, a high school parent might be feeling like, you know, that sounds good in theory, but that sounds a little bit scary, though. I, I feel like I'm exposing my kid to something that may actually be harmful, might lead them astray. So just speak to that general concern that parents might have on that front. Yeah, see, this is the tightrope balance. On one level, I know parents are very concerned to prevent their kids from being exposed to non-Christian thought. Uh, they don't want them to you know, read the books, watch the movies, even have the friends that might influence them. And there's a, there's a right and proper place to think through those things and how to balance those things. And we're not going to just throw our kids to the wolves, so to speak, when they're so immature they can't handle it. But any good parent, though, over time, slowly recognizes what their kid can understand and can handle and slowly begins to expose them to it so they can understand why it is the way it is. And so I think that's what they have to think about with non-Christians. And and one simple way of 
of doing that is, is for parents to ask themselves, how do they speak about non-Christians to their kids when they speak about them? Mm. Do they speak about them in a way that seems, you know, inherently derogatory and dismissive and that they're, they're kind of all morons and, you know, only, only we are the really intelligent and smart ones who figured this all out. If you have a tone in your family like that, wow, you're setting your kids up for a real rude awakening. Mm. You know, a place to go in that regard is 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul tells the Corinthians that, yeah, the, the gospel is offensive to the world out there. They're, they're always going to stumble over it. But don't think that don't think you're Christians because you're smarter. Paul goes out of his way in First Corinthians to say, no, you guys were not the sharpest knives in the drawer. Don't get me wrong. You're Christians because of God's grace. And so what you realize is that we need to be we need to be reminded that, that Christians aren't Christians because we're, we're sharp. We're sharper and smarter. We're Christians because of God's grace. And there's actually many not Christians that are a lot smarter than us. And being a Christian or not being a Christian has nothing to do with how smart you are. Mm. Well, and that kind of ties into this general topic of humility uh, and, and how do we uh, balance a robust sense of humility with the confidence in what we believe. And I think, uh, you know, speaking about college in particular, I, I think one of the, the often touted benefits of college, one of the joys and exciting things about those undergraduate years is that it is a time of exploring and learning and expanding your world a little bit. Um, that's kind of what makes it so exciting. Uh, so what does it look like for a college student, a young person going into college, to approach it in that way, to approach it with a level of openness to learning new things, to, to seeing new things, and yet also not to abandon at the same time the kind of core tenets of their worldview? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a really important thing for people to think through. Um, and you use the term humility there. And I think that's the right term, but the term has to be carefully defined. One of the mistakes that's made is that people, when they think they want to be humble, they actually don't use the biblical definition of humility. They use instead the world's definition of humility. And that's going to get you off the, the, the right tracks from the get-go. The world's definition of humility is basically equating humility with uncertainty. So from the world's perspective, to be humble is to be uncertain. Hmm. Uh, to be humble is to say, I don't know. To, 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 to be humble is to say, well, you know, who can know such things? That's the world's definition of humility. Now, of course... That, that's not what Christians believe, and that's not what the Bible says humility is. Christians can be 100% humble and 100% certain of what they believe. And the reason you can is because you believe it based on the fact that God has revealed it in his word, not because you're so smart or you're so great. So you can be really humble and yet still certain about the core truths of the Christian faith. So that's that's the first thing I would say. Second thing, though, is that even if we're, we're certain about the core truths of the Christian faith, there's still a lot of room for humility about how much we still don't know not only about Christianity, but about the world. And so, you know, one, one way that Christians can, can sort of grow and learn and expose themselves to new exciting things in college is to recognize, wow, I'm 18, I'm 19, I haven't seen very much, I don't know very much. Even if I'm certain that Jesus is Lord, there's a lot I don't know about what that means. There's a lot I don't know about how to process that and about what the Bible says. And there's a lot I don't know about the world around me. And I just need to take a big, deep breath, admit I don't know, be humble about it and dive in. Now, when you dive in, you're not just turning your brain off as if you're not still thinking Christianly. Of course, you're still thinking Christianly because the, the Bible is going to guide you in that. But there is a sense of just admitting you don't know what you think you do. And, and this, of course, is the humor of youth, right? I always joke <laughs> with my seminary students. I'm like, you actually are going to know the most the first year you're in seminary. That's what I tell them. And what I mean by that is, of course, they're going to learn a ton of things, but they think they know the most already. And it's only when you'll learn a lot, you realize how much you don't know. And so there's this weird paradox. The more you know, the more you know you don't know, and the more humble that makes you. And that's a that's a advice I would give to college students, too. I'm sure every parent of a college student is nodding their head right now, <laughs> uh, smiling to themselves. <laughs> every parent. Uh, 
So, uh, yeah, let's get into then one thing you mentioned there was the Bible. The Bible is this foundational uh, source of knowledge and authority in the Christian life and for the Christian worldview. Um, but a, a common critique that's often levied against Bible-believing Christians uh, is related to that phrase, Bible-believing. Uh, arguably for uh, the Christian, kind of everything core about our worldview ultimately stems in some way from God's revelation in the Bible. Uh, this ancient collection of documents that was compiled over hundreds of years. Um, how can a Christian, though, a Christian student in particular, effectively advocate for things uh, like a biblical view of sexuality, say, for example, or the historicity of the resurrection when they're talking with people who don't accept the Bible as an authoritative document? Uh, I think that's a very practical kind of question that Christians might often feel uh, when they're engaged in this way. Well, yeah, I mean, the Bible has a lot of things in it that our world doesn't doesn't agree with, right? Uh, that not only they don't like, but they would probably say is pretty offensive. And you've, you've mentioned a few of those. And so, yeah, when you go on campus and you're like, well, look, I believe what the Bible says, and you get kind of laughed off the stage. Um, there's there's a number of ways to, to, to sort of help uh, people understand why we believe the Bible and why it matters. I think one mistake that's made uh, in these discussions is to try to debate the particular issue under under uh, discussion before you deal with larger issues of how you know what you know. So, for example, let's imagine you're having a disagreement with your non-Christian friend over some issue related to sexuality. Well, you can go round and round on that for days and get nowhere because what you don't agree on is how you know anything at all and, 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 and how you make decisions about what's right and wrong in the world. And so one of the pieces of advice I gave Emma, and I certainly give any college student and truthfully any Christian, is that you got to back up a minute and leave that issue uh, on the back burner for a moment and ask larger questions. Those larger questions would be things like, well, is there even right and wrong in the world? And if there is right and wrong in the world, how do you know what's right and wrong? Um, are you suggesting there's a, this is a world that has moral absolutes or doesn't? Uh, and if there are moral norms, things that are always right and always wrong, regardless of cultures and times, how do you know what those are? Uh, where do they come from? Okay, now you've just changed the debate entirely by asking those questions. Suddenly you're saying, well, hold on a second. If I'm going to say something's right or something's wrong, I got to have some ultimate standard for that. Well, here's the pickle that puts a non-Christian in. They don't have an ultimate standard. All they have is their own brain, their own fallible, fallen human mind. Here's what Christians have. They at least have purported divine revelation. Now, the non-Christian is going to dismiss that and say, well, I don't believe in the Bible. That's missing the point. It makes sense, at least on the Christian worldview, why we claim something's right or wrong, because we at least admit that we think we have something that transcends humanity. Mm. And so what you realize is as soon as you make that logic clear, it changes the nature of the game because it actually makes it clear why we think you can say something's right or wrong. Actually, only the Christian has a coherent reason for doing so. Um, and the non-Christian is going to have to struggle to come up with a reason. So once you put the debate on that territory, it's going to strengthen the, the, the position the Christian's in. So, but what advice would you offer to the Christian who's, who's trying to do that, but they're realizing that maybe the coherence, the logical consistency of the worldview that the non-Christian is advocating for, or again, maybe the progressive Christian is advocating for, that actually isn't that important to them. They, they aren't that inclined towards a super locked down type of worldview. They're just, they're kind of happy with a, I don't really know why, I just feel like that that feels good to me. <laughs> well, you, you, do, you do run into people that think they don't have a worldview, um, although they do. Um, you run into people that claim they don't believe in moral norms, although they do. And one of the things that I would encourage people to, to recognize is the difference between what people profess versus how they live and how they really believe at their heart. A good example of this is the standard debate you have with someone 
over sexuality where they're like, well, there's, you know, there's right for you and, and, and right for me. There's wrong for you and, and wrong for me that morals are relative. And they give you that big, long speech. And they're so convinced that morality is relative. OK, that's scene A. Scene B, you, you, you cross over the campus the next day and they're, they're out there protesting environmental pollution and how the, the world is being destroyed by, by environmental problems and how it's wrong and how it's morally reprehensible and how these corporations should be punished and fined and so on. You're like, well, hold on a second. I was just talking to you last night in the dorm and you were telling me that morality is relative and there are no moral norms, but you don't seem to believe that today because here you are you know, picketing and declaring things to be wrong and so on. So there's this weird sort of intellectual back and forth in the non-Christian. And so what this means is, is that the non-Christian is inherently inconsistent with his own worldview and it kind of hops back and forth hmm. between one and the other. And, and there's a reason they do that because they can't live consistently. Now, the problem from the Christian side is that you're trying to hit a moving target, right? Because as soon as you get them on one side, they flip over to the other. Hmm. But that's exactly what you want to point out is that kind of inconsistency is, is, is a conversation point, which I think you can press as a, as a believer. Hmm. Yeah, let's dig into that issue then that you just raised there. Probably one of, if not the most hot topic, uh, hot button issues of our day, I think especially on college campuses, is that issue of gender and sexuality. Uh, and I would imagine there's a lot of young Christian students who are going into college. They, they recognize that. They have a sense of that. A lot of parents would have a sense that that's the case. Um, but they, they face an uphill battle uh, in, in a context where the pressure is going to be so intense now, do you, do you sense that? Is that the case that there is a unique pressure on college campuses for students on this issue? Oh yeah, um, this is this is this is part of the newness of our world. You asked me originally in our earlier part of the discussion, you know, what's changed? Um, here's what's changed. What 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 hasn't changed is discussions and disagreements over sexuality. That that was true when I was in college. That's that's been true for generations. But what has changed is the meaning of those disagreements. Used to be when I was in college and you have a vigorous exchange with someone about whether something's right or wrong, you can have that vigorous exchange and everyone understands that's just the way, you know, ideas interplay with one another. And you, you make your case, you make my I make my case and and, you know, we shake hands when it's over. Now, when you bring up disagreements over sexuality, people, you know, understand it to be a personal attack. They see it as a as, as a as a sort of an aggressive move against their own identity. They see it as abusive or uh, in some sense demeaning to them as a person. So what's happened in our world today, and this, of course, isn't news to anyone, is that people's sexuality is so intertwined with their identity that it's no longer a, a behavior. Um, it's not anything. It's not something you do. It's it's who you are. Now, that makes conversations really tricky hmm. um, now on the college campus. You can't just go out and say, well, well, the Bible says, you know, these behaviors are wrong. Well, the Bible does say that. But now you're talking to an audience that doesn't hear that anymore. Now they're hearing, oh, you hate me. Mm -hmm. um, you, you want to destroy me. And therefore, if you hate and want to destroy me, I want to hate and destroy you. And suddenly you find yourself in a discussion. You're like, wait, 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 hold on a second. How did it get that intense so fast? Well, that's the complication of our world today. So, you know, what do you do with that? Well, obviously, Christians need to give a lot of thought uh, and consideration to tone, to timing, to the relationships they build. You don't want to go into these things with both guns blazing out of the holster as if you're insensitive to every cultural scenario you're in. But at the same time, you don't want to compromise. And this is what my encouragement to, to, to Christians on campus, that the, the easy way out is just to give up and to change your view or maybe hold your view in secret and hope no one ever finds out. Well, I don't think that's the solution either. So it is complicated. And those are the tough balance acts that uh, our college students have to face today.
Mm. Yeah. What would you say? What advice to the Christian student who who would say, I want to be faithful. I feel convinced in Scripture's teaching, but man, I don't want to draw unnecessary attention to myself or, or become, even in the minds of my fellow students, my professors, the administration, I don't want to be defined by my view on this one issue as if this is all that matters. Uh, what would you say to that person? Yeah, well, there's so many suggestions I would have for them. Um, you know, I think I think one mistake that college students make who are Christians and well-intended is they think they're obligated to speak up every time someone says something that's not true. Um, and I, I don't think that's true for Christians. I don't think we're obligated to do that. We don't always have to say something all the time, every time we see somebody mistaken about issues in our world. Um, and I know that there's zealous Christians who think that like, well, if I'm in a classroom, my professor says something, I got to raise my hand. If my, that, that's, that's uh, my job as a yeah, Christian. Yeah, it's my job. And if I'm not doing that, well, I'm a coward. And I, I, I no, there's, there's times for things and there's, there's times to be wise, uh, in how you do it and when you do it. So I think first lesson is it's not your job to correct everybody on the college campus. If that were, you would have nothing else to do but correct people on the college campus. And then you would, of course, be a very unpopular person uh, regardless. <laughs> the second piece of advice, and I gave this a little bit earlier, but I come back to it because it's, it's relevant here, is that don't let the discussion sit only on the narrow issue in debate. You know, if you want to debate, let's say, homosexual marriage with your non-Christian friend, I mean, I, go, I guess you could go round and round on that in terms of is it good? Is it consistent? Is it what are the legal ramifications and, and so on? But I would, I would suggest stepping out of that again and going back to the larger worldview questions. Well, how do you know anything is right or wrong? Is there right or wrong in the world that is transcendent um, over humanity? Are there moral norms? If so, how do you know them? Those are the kinds of questions that really get to the nub of the matter. And the good thing about going there is it takes the heat out of the discussion. They don't feel like they're having to defend themselves. They're just having to think about how you know things are right or wrong. And as soon as they realize their worldview has no basis for right or wrong, then that hopefully will bring them back to recognizing that their preference for certain sexual things it's just that. It's just a preference, and it doesn't mean it's right. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to the parent listening right now who has, has heard all that you've said and, and is thinking in their head, you know, uh, Dr. Kruger, you don't know my Jimmy. You know, we go to church every Sunday uh, when he was growing up. He was in Sunday school. He was at youth group. We pray before dinner every night. I'm, I'm really not that worried about him going and staying the course at college. Uh, I, I just don't think this is as big a threat as you seem to be making it out to be. Well, there's a balancing act there. Um, you know, one of the things I, I say in the introduction to my book is that, you know, I'm not writing the book to scare parents. I'm not trying to create this scenario where everybody at college is part of the Inquisition trying to, you know, destroy your child. And, you know, lots of people go to college and have great experiences and lots of people go to college and, and even grow spiritually. But that said, the parent who has the perspective that you just laid out, I think, is not doing their child a good service. Um, it is it is a dangerous business going to college. It reminds me of the line that uh, Bilbo Baggins gives to Frodo in The Fellowship of the Ring, right? Which is it's a dangerous business stepping outside your door. You know, you better watch how you you know where you, where you step. You never know where you might get swept off to. And there's a sense in which when you go on an adventure, you got to realize that there are dangers. Um, and so telling yourself and then effectively telling your child, Jimmy, you're going to be fine. No worries here. Don't, you know, don't, don't stress yourself out about it. This is, you know, you're, 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 you're stronger than everybody else. And this isn't going to affect you. I think is unfortunately naive. And I could tell parents story after story. And I think they inherently probably know them of students going off to college and coming back very soon thereafter being very, very different than the kids that left. So yeah, we don't want to have this sort of overly, you know, skeptical martyr complex, 
But at the same time, let's not by, by be naive about it and be unaware of the real dangers. Mm. All right, so we've, you've spoken to parents there. I want you to talk to the Christian college student, him or herself, who's listening right now and has maybe uh, felt the pressures uh, to the Christian faith that we've been discussing today, some of them that we've discussed, and there are many other ways in which the Christian worldview is, is brought under stress at a college campus. Um, and if this person was being honest, they would say that they have started to wonder whether or not there might actually be some real problems with their faith. Uh, what would you say to that person? Yeah, this is a very common experience. Uh, there's several things I would say uh, to this person. Um, first, you're not the first one to, to go to college and wonder these things. So you're in good company. It's very normal and natural to go to college and get introduced to new things and wonder, wow, is what I believe true? And what about that new thing I just learned about? Is that true? Th- that is something that people experience. It doesn't mean that uh, what you believe is false. And it doesn't mean, mean you're a bad Christian to ask these questions. Um, these are important questions to probe and ponder, and that's part of the college experience. The second thing I would tell them is that you don't have to have all the answers to the hard questions in order to believe. And this is a big mistake, and I really want to pause on this for a moment. I, I hear all the time from Christians in college, well, I got asked all these questions I couldn't answer. And they think, therefore, I have to abandon my faith, or therefore, what I believe isn't true. But but I would go back and say, well, no, you, just because you can't answer a question doesn't mean that what you believe isn't true. There's, there's, there's lots of things that we believe that if we were really pressed on them, we probably couldn't give a reason for them, but it doesn't mean they're not true. Hmm. Um, and so you have to realize that you can't expect yourself to be able to stand toe-to-toe with some professor or some graduate student. And if you fail to do that, suddenly what you believe is false? No, that doesn't follow at all. And so I would say, give yourself a break. Of course, you're going to have questions you don't answer, you don't have answers to. That doesn't mean what you believe is false, is, is, isn't true. The third thing I would say is don't confuse not having an answer with there not being an answer. You don't have the answer, fair enough, but there are answers. Christians have been dealing with these things for years. I can tell you this, whatever Christian students right now are hearing at college, I can tell you, generally speaking, it's not new. Everybody thinks it's new. Everybody thinks, wow, I've never heard that before. Maybe you haven't heard that before, but I can promise you that that's been dealt with before, mm-hmm. long before your day. Um, and I think you can take comfort by, by knowing there's answers out there, and the next step is to go find them. Hmm. That's one of the things that I've noticed uh, often in talking with young Christians today is that uh, our knowledge of church history and the history of the, the Christian faith uh, is often so limited that we, we can seem to think, get, fall into the habit of thinking that anything that I'm engaging right now, any critique or challenge to the faith that I'm finding right now is wholly new and wholly unaddressed in the history of the Christian faith. No, that's exactly right. In fact, uh, a recent book I wrote called Christianity at the Crossroads, I deal with this, where I talk about um, the earliest Christians, particularly the Christians in the second century, and how they interface with the Roman world. And I, I make the, the the observation there that if you read the apologists during this time, and there were many apologists because Christianity was under serious attack, it is remarkable how similar the issues are hmm. in that day to today. In fact, you can almost pluck quotes right off the page and think someone wrote it today. Wow. Um, It is a stunning parallel. And so, you know, when we think, oh, the church is in trouble and the world's lost and no one believes and and everybody's against us and the church is going to, you know, get 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 trampled and so on. I'm like, well, you know, that was all true in the second century and the church flourished and grew and grew. So the, the issue isn't being in the majority. The issue isn't having political power. The issue is faithfully following Christ every day and entrusting that to him. Yeah. Well, and one other thing you mentioned here, it, it kind of leads me to that broad topic of doubt, doubt in the Christian life. And it, it seems like it's 
kind of in vogue among many Christians today to speak in, of doubt in very positive terms. <laughs> you know, em, em, embrace your doubt. It's actually part of what it means to have faith, and, and we've all kind of heard that type of language. Uh, what would you say about doubt? How, how should we think about the doubts that we might be wrestling with when it comes to what we believe? This is pretty common fare for college students to deal with this, and of course non-college students deal with doubt too. The first thing I would say is that there's two extremes you want to avoid. One, one extreme is this idea that, that, that doubting makes you an awful Christian and you can't ever let yourself doubt something and that we squash all questions under the heading of just believe. Um, I, I disagree with that. There are certain churches and segments of Christianity that sort of operate this way where they don't let people ask tough questions. They don't let people wrestle with things. And everybody who doubts is shamed as if there's something you know, you know, inherently wrong with them. So I would think we would need to reject that extreme. The other extreme, though, is the one you hinted at, which is there's some Christians today that celebrate doubt as if it's the highest new Christian virtue. Mm. Um, and that if you're, if you're certain of what you believe, then there's something wrong with you. So certainty is the greatest vice and uncertainty is the greatest um, sort of uh, you know, attribute you can have. Uh, and I would also disagree with that. Doubt, if unchecked, can become a real problem. And so the issue for Christians is not to be shamed by doubt, but you also have to fight doubt. Um, you want to you wanna push back against it and look for ways to anchor your faith more strongly. So just understanding that alone, I think, can help people um, when they think about sort of, sort of doubt in the Christian life. Um, the other thing I would say about doubt is there's different species of it. Um, some people doubt Christianity on intellectual reasons. Some people doubt for, for personal reasons, like they doubt whether they're a Christian. So it's not so much whether they doubt Christianity is true, but whether they're a Christian. And then some people just worry about everything. <laughs> and they also <laughs> worry about whether Christianity is true. And so you've got a sort of little, little diagnosis there of kind of which version are you. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Maybe as a last question, uh, we, we talked about your daughter at the very beginning, how she is now a sophomore in college. Um, maybe speaking kind of with an eye towards other parents who might be listening right now who also have children in college, what are you praying for your daughter? Well, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a great, great way to end, I think, is to, is to ask that question. Well, there's so many things I'm praying for her. Um, and, you know, certainly at the, at the center of it, um, my, my prayer is that God would, would, would bless her with, with protection and perseverance. And by that, I mean, not that he would protect her from difficult things, because I think those difficult things are important to, to grow and, and learn, but protect her from, from being drawn away from the faith, protect her, her heart, that it, its affections remain on Christ, um, to recognize that, that, that that's always a danger for everybody we send out and to, and to pray that the Lord would keep her, just like we pray for anybody. Um, at the same time, too, I think the other thing I pray for her is that she would, um, you know, n not not go through college with sort of this complacent, I got it all figured out, I'm glad I was raised in a Christian home, and now that's all done with sort of attitude, right? And she she didn't go in with that attitude, but I, I, I do pray that she would be humble and realize I've got a lot to learn, and I want to grow, and I need to, to do more to learn about Christianity and to learn learn what I can learn from my non-Christian friends and learn about the world around me. And so that humility is important. And that humility, again, doesn't mean you doubt your faith. It just means that you recognize your limitations. And those, mm -hmm. are, those, are, those are two very different things. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and uh, to provide, I think, some encouragement for both students and parents alike as they think about uh, engaging with uh, non-Christians and uh, non-Christian worldviews on the college campus. Well, thanks so much. Great to be with you. And let's do it again. That was Michael Kruger on how young people can make it through college without compromising their faith. 
For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show to others. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.